Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And it is a real treat to have our friend Stephen Hunter with us this evening, plus a very special guest, which will, will pop on the screen here momentarily. Uh, we're going to be discussing Steve's brand new book, Front Sight, Three Swagger Novellas. And uh, we have um, a nice batch of signed copies that Stephen has sent us. I will go ahead and put a link uh, in the comments field should you wish to purchase one. And um, I'll also, Barbara, would you like me to put a link to our special guests upcoming yes, book as well? Definitely so. You should put um, a link to the special guest May book as well, because some of you watching this may well want to order it. Well, his name's right there on the screen so they can all see it. <laughs> so, no. Actually, Jack went out to get a little um, libation. <laughs> so, so he'll be back in just a minute. Steve has got wine. I have, you know, a little something. And Patrick, who has a live event coming up, is <laughs> there he is, right? So what an absolute treat it is. I'm going to get to spend time with two of my favorite authors and people. Um, Stephen Hunter and Ooh. and there he is, Jack Carr. Back. Here we go. Cheers, everybody. Ah. Right. So, cheers, cheers, cheers. And Did I have to say, a triple, uh, a triple toast. This and this is. I think I grabbed a horrible wine, but it was the first thing out there. But uh, Steve, thank you so much for everything, and thank you. Oh, for you're a great man. Inspiring me on this on this journey. Thank you so much. So this takes me back to the last time Steve was with us live at the Poison Pen when Jack Carr and Mark Graney came to celebrate, um, you know, Steve's long career, which began in, I hope this is right, Steve, in 1980 with Master Sniper. Does that sound right? That sounds right to me. I even, uh, I remember writing a few words of that book. Uh, not many, but a few. <laughs> Look and, at that. Yeah, Jack has a copy. Oh, my look, goodness. There it is. First edition it's signed right here. Look at that. that. Look at that camo you had on there. That's a great cover. Hey, yeah, well, that was, uh, it was, but if you look at the, if you look carefully at the hand of the sniper, you'll see that they've got the, he's got his right hand on his left arm. And I don't know how they <laughs> You're exactly right. That. Uh -huh. I don't know how they, I mean, don't they teach anatomy in art schools anymore? <laughs> I don't know what's going on with that. I'm starting to count the fingers. It looked like he might have six on there, but no, they got the number of fingers right. But uh, interesting uh, eye relief from the uh, scope to the eye right there too. But Yes, you know, it is. Yeah, it a, was, it's a, not a, terribly uh, technically accurate, but yeah, then neither was the book. So. So two gun guys, right? <laughs> but actually we're here, um, we're, we're here to talk about the swagger verse which is basically three swaggers, Charlie and Bobbly and in between Earl. Um, so three generations, right? Charlie, yes. Earl, and Bobbly. But what hooks this all together, these three novellas, is Steve's distinguished and Pulitzer Prize winning career as a film critic for the Baltimore Sun. He was the Baltimore Sun, wasn't it? Well, I won the Pulitzer at the Washington Post. Okay, but, and then you I, did- I did that job on both newspapers for a total of 28 years. And as a result, Steve has um, structured this book in part um, based upon films that were trending, popular, whatever it is in these three periods, the 1930s, 1945 for Earl and 1970s for Bob Lee. 
So, Jack, you've had some experience with film and movies in recent times, and we've seen your announcements about the, the prequel. Um, so I bet you're glad the writer's strike is over. Yes, yeah, so that put us behind. Even though the writer's strike was, uh, I think, just shy of six months, it put us behind probably about a year just because of all the the compounding variables, I guess is the best way to put it, associated with having to put things on pause for that long. So um, I think it'll come out probably a year after we thought it, it would. Uh, we would be done filming by now. It would be completely finished and we'd be in post-production right now if we were on target. But, you know, just like anything in life, you have to adapt and uh, just be thankful that we're all back on track and everybody's back working again. And yeah, there should be some casting announcements coming soon. So it's pretty That's exciting. Pretty exciting. Meantime, it gives you slightly more time to finish writing your book for May. That's um, what I thought, but it didn't end up working out. Not that working way. that way. No, oh dear. no, it's just chaos constantly around here. So um, back to back to Steve, who's had wonderful reviews for Front Sight. Let me point this out again, the name of this book. Um, and I'm going to quote one, the excellent latest from Pulitzer Prize winner Hunter showcases three generations of the crime-fighting swagger family and stylistically diverse tales of violence and corruption. And Steve and I were just talking before we went live that both of us went to Northwestern University. Um, Steve was in the middle school. I know, is it Medell or Medell? How do we pronounce Medell. it? Thank you. Medell. Medell School of Journalism, which my father yeah. in the 1930s also went to. And as a result, he is familiar with Chicago and theoretically with the Chicago Stockyards, which is the setting for City of Meat. And as I said to Steve, I am eternally grateful I never ate at the Stockyards Inn after reading <laughs> City of Meat. Oh, Lord. So Steve, talk to us about, you know, what what the movie um, that, you know, the message movie, because you said that um, you're interested or you were interested in writing City of Meat to reflect that. Well, just briefly, in order to answer that question truthfully, uh, should I tell the truth tonight or not? Which do you prefer, Barbara? Anyway, I, uh, I mean, you're uh, such a deaf liar. I don't know. Uh, I'd ever figure it out. Don't let it get in the way of a good story, but, uh, yeah. you know. I'll, I'll, I'll tell the truth. The truth is, this whole project began about 10 years ago when I had a sort of a soft summer, and I decided to write a film noir. Because, you know, I'm partially a movie guy and I go through these sprees in terms of certain genres. I went through a film noir period. I went through a war movie period. I went through a musical period. I have to see everything that's good in the genre. And I decided to write the perfect film noir. And I did, except that no one else uh, agreed with me that it was perfect. And so it languished. And last year, I was looking for a new book to do after uh, uh, The Bullet Garden. And it occurred to me that an easy way to get some money would be to take this old screenplay and rewrite it as a novel. And I figured it would take me about two days. I'm sorry, it would take me about two weeks, maybe a month at most. Well, it took eight months. And it was the worst work I've ever done in my life. It was absolutely horrible. And I ended up writing, rewriting just about, except for the gunfights, every single word in it. Uh, you know, it's. It, I, I think there's three sentences left <laughs> from the screenplay. And then some people who read it didn't get that it was a film noir. So that's when I added that 
a beginning uh, that uh, in author's note, and I sort of framed it as a film noir, so they would go to it with that in mind. Um, and once I had done that, when I was done with all that, I still only had 130 pages, which is exactly the worst length for anything to be, because it's too long for a short story, it's too short for a single volume. So it was then I decided the only way I could get this done was to uh, write two other shorter novels, novellas they're called technically, and uh, I could publish the three of them. And from there, it was just sort of logical to do Earl and then to go back and do Charles, and then to go ahead and do Bob Lee. Now, I will admit the Charles, uh, the Charles uh, story really didn't fit perfectly into any particular film genre. And I think I got it, I got as close as I could get with the message picture of the 30s, because there were great message pictures in the 30s, because then as now there were many messages that people felt uh, uh, that they had to express. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just was trying to sort of frame the way they approach the story. I, framing is so important. Uh, if you want a certain effect, it helps so much if you can sort of control uh, ex, uh, expre uh, expectations before you even start. And that's what I did with these uh, two things, with the two, uh, with the uh, author's note. And the third, uh, I was really stuck for a third one. I knew it had to be in the 70s. And really the most vivid genre of the 70s was Italian horror mystery uh, of a sort called Giallo. And I had just seen a batch of them and I really liked them, even though they're a little disreputable. And uh, I just uh, I just sat down and started writing with no idea where there was what the plot would be. I, I knew what the tropes were, but I didn't know how to uh, put them into a, any kind of meaningful plot. And that's okay because most of the Giallo plots are complete nonsense anyway. But somehow it kind of worked out and it kind of fits together and it's kind of okay. And so it just shows, it just shows that, you know, it's better to be lucky than good, believe me. And it was a lot of fun. Writing that one was the most fun of all. Oh, my goodness. You know, you might like listening to uh, Quentin Tarantino's podcast. They do a few episodes on the Giallo uh, film genre in the 70s. That's his favorite era of film for Quentin Tarantino. He would, yeah, he loves Giallo. There's a, well, mm -hmm. a lot of what I would call advanced film people, not to be snooty about it, but a lot of advanced film people like Quentin Tarantino, another big fan of Giallo is, believe it or not, Martin Scorsese. You know, probably the considered the single best uh, director in the world, or one of the top five directors in the world. This very distinguished career, and yet he's down there in the gutter with Quentin and me, rooting. You know, as the police close in on the killer with machine guns in the Sicily of nineteen seventy three. It's it's yeah. great, and uh, the movies are very vivid. And uh, they're like dreams, and they they conjure imagery that you can never forget, for good or bad. They just imprint in the deep part of your brain. Yeah, should I have 
I have this right here, that too. Speaking of films, oh, right that yeah. this guy. Yes, uh, that's I've collected two uh, two issues, two volumes of film criticism. Uh, it's there. Uh, take it or leave it. Uh, am I was I a good film critic or a hack? I don't even know myself. I think uh, some of the pieces are pretty good. I think some of them, some of the others. <laughs> I bluffed my way through a lot of stuff. <laughs> Let me tell you, I, I see a movie and I say, what the hell was that? But somehow <laughs> in the newspaper the next day, 800 words of more or less coherent English would be printed under my byline. So I somehow managed to get through it. And it, again, you know, it, it's who, who has a better job than the movie critic of a major metropolitan newspaper? And that was in the, uh, that was in the era when movie critics were special. Of course, now, if you have a keyboard, you're a movie critic. So it's, you know, there's no, there's no winnowing. There's no contest to become a movie critic. You just, you know, you just start shooting your mouth off and see if people like it. Uh, even yeah. if they don't, you keep going because you like it. And that's the point. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite remarkable. The Rotten Tomatoes seeing the critics score on things yeah. versus the audience score well, on I things. I actually think that's had a pernicious impact on the little professional film criticism that's left. And that's because everybody becomes immediately aware of what New York thinks. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to be out of step with New York. And so there's a lot of, I think, uh, there's a lot of people whose fundamental impulse is to be to conform. Nobody wants to always be the outlier. And, uh, and that's probably, if if film critics were freer uh, to, to write without influence and awareness of what the consensus was, I think that as a journalistic genre, uh, the art would be somewhat improved. So did you see yes, the Academy? Did, did you see the Academy Award? You probably did. Nominations, in which I gather there were some real surprises. Yes, uh, uh, yes. Uh, I'll be honest with you, Barbara. I never. I tried not to pay much attention to the Academy Awards. I was sort of forced to become an instant mm -hmm. expert, and of course, I knew nothing about them. You know, I couldn't tell. You. I can't even remember who won last year. I can tell you who won the Super Bowl. I can't tell you who won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And um, yeah, there were some surprises. I, I saw that uh, I, it seemed to me that Barbie, the director of Barbie got shafted and Margot Robbie, I'm sorry, Margot Robbie, who played Barbie. Uh, I'm surprised that she'd get a back Best Actress nomination. But you'd have to, you, you need an Oscar nerd you know, there are millions of them who they can tell you who won best cinematographer of 1937. Uh, well, I guess my question was, is there any, Jack, you could maybe speak to this, you know, is there any trend that we could identify at the moment since Steve has written in three different eras, you know, three different, you know, glommed on to three different Hollywood trends, whatever you want to call it. What's going uh, on? Genre is, I think, would be the right word. Genre? Okay. Genres. What do you think, Jack? Well, I've been locked down, so I didn't even see any of these announcements because I am only surfacing because Stephen Hunter is uh, launching this yes. book today. So that is the only reason I'm picking my head up from actually writing. So I have not seen uh, any of that. But it's interesting to see 
and kind of be a part of it now, having been a fan in from the late 70s all the way through the 80s, all the way through the 90s, but mostly the 80s. That's my formative time, 1985, I would say. It was my my pivotal year uh, when I really started not just uh, watching, when I was watching the same type of movies I like today and reading the same kind of books that I like today, that I write today. And, and uh, so that was very pivotal time. But then to see that shift to become an author and has as a child to have thought about writing something that gets turned into at the time a feature film but then kind of come of age in this profession now where there's the streaming services are so strong and then now are also having to kind of reorganize um, based on a few years of really spending a lot of money and really green lighting a lot of different films, just getting volume out there. And now seeing that change up a little bit, becoming more selective, um, becoming very more uh, uh, aware of their budgets. And uh, so being a part of that all now, I think it, for me is, is fascinating because you have to adapt. And that's what I did on the battlefield to the enemy was constant adaptation. So now I'm doing it in a in a, uh, an industry where if I mess it up, no one's going home in a body bag, so that's okay. Uh, I can just fix it the next day and learn from it and move on. But it's very interesting to be uh, adapting my books and then also I'm involved in a few other projects now uh, in Hollywood and just to see how those all come together uh, and, and how it's changed just over the last five years. So if you're really looking at streaming, what you're saying is that there's a, a big true crime trend and you know interestingly guys in crime fiction i don't know if you've noticed it you can't because you're too busy locked down writing um but you know how we used to have a private eye and the private eye you know or the police yeah. eye would be the the investigator and pushing it forward the new thing in crime fiction is the podcaster because the private eye is kind of you know the gumshoe isn't really a gumshoe anymore right he's a computer nerd um, and and I think this podcast thing is, I mean, podcaster as lead character is fascinating, but I'm also noticing the huge amount of true crime on, you know, on streaming. Um, you know, it's a, every week, the New York Times will list a whole bunch of stuff, and um, an enormous amount of it is, um, you know, adapting true crime to, to television and all. So what do you think the appeal of the terminal list has been is that our you know our desire for a hero are you replacing superman with jack reese no i think it's a uh it's a kickback to those days i talked about earlier where you have in the, in the 80s except with maybe some better weapons handling uh, a little more authenticity but still to those same kind of stories where you're rooting for somebody um and it's the one man against the system and whether that's uh, a <clears throat> rocky or a, a rambo or whatever it <clears throat> it may be it's uh it's the, the, the one man against the system and who has, who has some friends to help him along the way, who has a mentor to give him some advice along the way. Like all those elements that have been part of storytelling from the days when we were telling stories around campfires, uh, not even campfires, around fires, uh, to pass on the lessons of the hunt and of warfare to keep those lessons alive for future generations. Really, that's what people, I think, uh, crave now more than ever without a message shoved down their throat. Um, and honor the story, not some sort of a, a message or some sort of uh, uh, alternate type of a, uh, a focus, but just to honor the story. And that's what I always come back to because people are trusting us with their time, whether that's reading these novels, reading this book right here, or watching the show. Uh, it is 
time that they're never going to get back. So when I'm when I'm writing, I don't know, if Steve, if this is the same for you, I always think about honoring that story. I don't think about trends. I don't think about if I'm going to lose an audience or gain an audience or whatever it might be. Am I going to upset somebody? Is Simon & Schuster going to push back, which they never have on anything, by the way? Um, it's complete, 100% creative control. But I always think about honoring the story because by doing that, I am in turn honoring that person who is spending time in the pages of this book or watching the show who's never going to get that time back. So that's kind of what my North Star is. Well, I would agree uh, 100% with that. I've, I'm, I am proud of my career, not that it's been wildly successful or anything, so much as the fact that it's lasted. Uh, this will be my... Uh, my 44th year as a published writer and to be still in a demand of some sort or other at the age of 77 is very uh, is very pleasing to me and i would attribute that to the uh you know again i was drawn from a very early age to the story and in any form uh you know barbara you talked about you were so amazed that how well true crime did but true crime is story it's always beginning inciting event middle development and end climax and that is a recipe it's, we get pointy headed about it i can point out it replicates both the hunt uh and it also replicates the sexual act you know it's incitement development and finally climax and that seems to be, as far as I can figure out, that's a fundamental human rhythm. And you mess with that at your own risk. That's something that uh, that everybody responds to, all cultures respond to. Every culture has a storytelling tradition. Every subculture, every sub-sub-subculture has a storytelling tradition. And that is... Um, it's just something human beings need and love stories and there's no way that we can ever you know that, that that we can get away from that and we should not want to get away from that and that's why i happen to think that being a storytelling a storyteller for a living no matter how you know grubby and how much hat compromise and how many people who are no good, you know, just it's it's a messy, tawdry business. But at the same time, it's noble. And it, it it seeks to go into people's lives and and uh and elevate them. It seems to make them care about issues beyond themselves and experience realities beyond their experience. And uh it's I just think one of the things it also does is it's sort of pre uh prozac prozac it relaxes it soothes the savage beast when you when you experience a good story you just want to you don't want to go out and make trouble you just want to luxuriate in the pleasure that the story is giving you and uh and remember it and it it'll it'll warm your life for weeks maybe months some cases years or decades afterwards and working doing that for a living i think being lucky enough to do that for a living is uh is 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 much fun 
Well, I hope any writers out there were taking notes or aspiring authors were out there taking notes on that um, because I, yeah, I'm going to watch it back and take some notes. But here's speaking of that 44 years, there's there's a couple of them right there. You can see. Oh my oh, God! Wow, Jay. I ran this downstairs because I'm. What is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm moving into a new office, and so uh, uh, all of those are going. In, it's like two doors, so this is a, yeah. this is one side, and the other side's over there. So they're gonna, they're I'm, I'm I've gotten kind of gotten moved into this one, but I'm moving into the one next door too, and and so they're gonna have a very an honored position in the other office right there. Um, so I don't know if I got all of them out of the downstairs bedroom where they've been for the last, uh, since June when we started this remodel here, but, uh, but I have all, all signed first editions and then, uh, I have paperbacks of course, as well that I read, uh, read growing up. So that's wow. uh, quite remarkable that well, you, uh, you, you honor me and I'm very, I'm very carpet of hunters. I was able to pro provide those books for your collection. Absolutely. A carpet of hunters. Who would have guessed? Right. So since we're talking about story, I'm going to haul us back to the first one here, because I don't think that we know as much about Charles Swagger as we know about Earl and Bob Lee. Um, so City of Meat, I'm quoting again, an exercise in social realism that recalls Upton Sinclair. Charles Swagger is the federal agent who shot John Dillinger, and he ends up in the stockyards and he's ostensibly looking for what? Pretty boy Floyd? Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, Babyface Nelson. Babyface, right, Nelson. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. But that's really, that's not entirely why he's there. Well, this is a, it was, this was a very curious project in that it's not a prequel and it's a, not a sequel. It's an in between quell, if such a thing exists. In other words, it's actually set within the narrative of my book, G Man. Uh, and I, of course, I didn't mention it then because I had no idea he was going to do it. But I did write one of my possible endings from that book involved Charles in a dopering in the, uh, uh, as that was cited at the Chicago Stockyards. However, I abandoned that. It was a bad idea. And I went back to what I went back with. And it, yet I thought the writing, I had about 40 pages. I really liked it. I mean, I thought it was very vivid. I I really, really, really liked the Chicago Stockyards as a setting. Uh, it was just so visual and so interesting and so unusual. And I wanted to take advantage of that. And so when I decided I had to write two more novels, I dug out that 40 pages and I sort of started over and wrote off of that. And uh, it was, you know, it was just... It's one of the cool things about what we do is that you really, if you do the research and care about what was happening, you really get into it. You really, you begin to smell it, you begin to taste it, you begin to look at it. And it's just fascinating uh, you know, someone said to me, how, how did you learn so much about the Chicago stockyards? The truth is I really don't know that much about the Chicago stockyards, but, at the same time, I know more than anyone except three other men in the world about the Chicago Stockyards, and they would be professional historians who written books about the Chicago Stockyards, all of which I borrowed liberally from. And, uh, you know, if you engage, if your imagination sort of engages, uh, 
a topic and a year and a reality. It you you learn it in a way you don't learn it if you're just studying it to get a PhD or studying it, you know, for some for some scholarly reason because you are required to engage your imagination in it and uh, and and to bring it to life. A historian has no license or no interest in bringing things to life. Some do, some don't. But a novelist has to bring it to life, or he's out of luck. He's not a novelist. Look what else I have here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you read it yet? No, no. I'm afraid. Suppose it's much better than my version. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, well, one of my books I should explain is it's based on the jacket copy, <laughs> the flap copy of that book. That's good. I thought it was a terrific idea. And I don't know how well he did it, but I just thought it was so cool. And so many years later, I used it. And uh, I give me some credit. Uh, say, like I say, I don't, plotting isn't my strongest point. Uh, action is strong. I think character is pretty strong. I think milieu is pretty strong, but the plotting is never terribly sophisticated. Or, you know, I, I read someone like Agatha Christie, and I, I, I shouldn't be allowed to bring her Dixie cups of water. You know, she's such a genius at that sort of thing. And um, uh, so there was a really good plot to that book. I just couldn't. I couldn't uh, resist, resist myself. So. I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I should say, restrain myself. Yeah. Yeah. I need to send one to you. That's what I need to do is uh, I got to track a good copy. Hey, have you read it yet? I have not. I've only read the okay. jacket copy. It's just like you. Yeah. And I'm waiting for you to read Help it. yourself, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Can you hold it up so we can actually, I can't really see what it is. Oh, there yeah, we go. have a thin skin. You remember that, Barbara? By Patrick Alexander. No, I haven't. No. Is, I wonder. I, I wish I could remember the name of the book that I wrote using that plot. Uh, I I don't want to mess it up, so I won't say it right now because I'm gonna I'll get I'll get the wrong one. But uh, okay. uh, let's see, this is 1976. Is yeah. uh, here, so yeah. Yeah, and I uh, in, in fact I started the book that would become the Master Sniper the next year, but I almost started that book then because I like the plot so much. But I, I put that off for another few years. Yeah. So if I can remember the name of it, I can't. <laughs> well, it, uh, so we... you were watching this and found out that Jack, who is a distinguished author in his own right, is also a real bibliophile. And one of the things he does is he collects books by his favorite authors. So he has Stephen, he has David Morrell. Who else have you really gone into collecting, Jack? Well, I went to first edition. My first was was getting uh, Stephen Hunter's, the first, my first check that I got from Simon and Schuster. Uh, I tracked down all signed first editions of Stephen Hunter's work. And, uh, and those were the first boxes when I still didn't really have any, any money, but I had boxes of signed first editions from Stephen Hunter, all of them. And uh, so, uh, so those are the first, David Morales. I don't deserve that, but go ahead. Who no, else? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And I, here's my, but this one's a special one because this is my, my paperback edition oh, yeah. of point of impact that i read back in 1994 94 95 time frame so um and it's exactly were you in the service then or when, when did you not yet it? not yet i went in in 96 so right before i went in yep 
Um, so this is my, this is a special one that I've held on to for all those, all those years, but yeah, signed first editions of, uh, David Morrell, uh, Daniel Silva, uh, Jean Le Carré, um, I have the Ian Flemings, but they're not signed first editions yet. Not quite there yet. I have, uh, collection right there, right. but they're not signed first editions. I'm gonna have to wait a couple of years, uh, for those. I understand they're fairly pricey. Um, but I like all those books that I read growing up, all the authors that influenced me growing up. Now I'm going out and finding signed first editions from them. So J.C. Pollock, uh, Mark Olden. Um, those are some authors that probably people haven't uh, aren't as familiar with, but I have all their entire library signed first editions now. And I have my original paperbacks that I read back in the 80s uh, and early 90s from them as well. So uh, it's fun for me to do that because I held on to those paperbacks for so long. I remember exactly where I was when I was reading each and every one. And then it's fun now to be able to track down those signed first editions and, and put them on the shelf here and have both that, that history that I have because I was reading these things when I read this I was reading this through the lens of someone who hadn't yet been in the military hadn't been to Iraq hadn't been to Afghanistan um I wasn't necessarily I wasn't that young yet when this one came out but um still young enough to not have as many filters that build up over time just through experience as we go through life so I got to enjoy this just because of what the magic that's in these pages and uh, I think that's by being a reader at an early age I think that helps build a foundation because if today, if I was to go back and read this for the or read this for the first time and decide, maybe I want to be an author, maybe I want to write, I read this. Well, now I have all these 50 years, essentially, of uh, built up experiences and uh, preconceived notions and uh, and just these filters that uh, and distractions now more than anything else, distractions uh, now. And so it's harder, I think, to enjoy it for what it is today. Uh, whereas back here when it came out and all those authors I mentioned earlier that I read all throughout the 80s, um, that was just magic. And so that's what I'm trying to do when I write is kind of recreate that for readers today, the magic that I enjoyed as a kid growing up, that same type of magic in those pages. So it's you know, when Jack do it to Stephen Hunter. When Jack does this, I see the ghost of his mother, the librarian, right behind him. <laughs> Your mom did a terrific job with you, you know? I remember right. asking you, how you know going into the military really fit into your life plan of becoming an author because you credit your mom with that um but i can see that it was actually reading rather than reading. the military gave you things to write about and all but reading is really what set you on this path isn't it oh absolutely on both both paths um because i'm reading books that have protagonists that mo for most of the time served in the military uh, and so I'm reading it a lot of the times back in the 80s and 90s because of that. Oh, this pretend so Stephen Hunter must have done some research into the Marine Corps because uh, he's Stephen Hunter. So I'm getting I'm getting that out of here as well. Uh, so I'm reading it for for all those reasons. But uh, at the same time, all these books are setting me on this path. Yes, into the military through inspiration and sometimes tactics, techniques, procedures, uh, weapons craft, uh, history of weapons, all sorts of things. Um, but also inspiring me then to write when I get out. I know what I'm gonna do next. I'm gonna serve first and then I'm gonna write. And the foundation of reading allowed me to do both because I'm also reading all the nonfiction. So most of the things in here in this library are, are nonfiction on this side. Most of the fiction is going in the other on the other side. Um, but reading that nonfiction also allows you to prepare yourself 
for a, a your time in uniform. So you can study the enemy. You can study, let's say if you're gonna go to Ranger School or Army Special Forces uh, uh, School, the Q course, or you're gonna go to BUDS SEAL training. You can do all the reading you possibly can before the internet, of course, uh, and essentially get to the end of the internet because you work your way to the end of that shelf in the library that's talking about SEAL training or Army Special Forces Q course training or Ranger School or whatever it might be. So you're preparing yourself uh, through reading as well. So really it's all, it's all built on a, a foundation of books. Steve, we've never actually talked about what kind of reader you were before you became a film critic, a journalist, and a writer. You must have been when you went off to journalism school, because Steve, um, as I mentioned earlier, is actually um, trained as a journalist in college. Well, I, you know, it's, that's some, that's true, but it's also in many ways not true. And then I only went to journalism to to become a film critic. I always, I was oriented towards being a film critic very early in the, in the, uh, in the process. And I, you know, I didn't realize in those days, every newspaper had a film critic. Uh, and the longer I thought about it, the more I realized, however, that it was a stupid ambition because film criticism began to die and papers, as they began to shrink, begin to uh, uh, dump film criticism. And just in terms of slots available, the number was much smaller. And it was an absurd ambition. It was like wanting to be a movie star. I used to always joke that there really were more uh, movie stars than there were professional film critics. You, you was, it was harder to become a professional movie critic than it was to become a movie star. And, uh, and somehow, uh, some of it was luck, some of it was very hard work, some of it was talent. Uh, somehow it came together and without, without, I made a number of really conscious decisions. I'm sorry, I made a number of really unconscious decisions that turned out to be perfect decisions. And I still, I'm stricken when I look back uh, why I made that decision as opposed to another decision. I wish it would, because I had a really strategic mind. No, nah, it was nothing like that. I just made that decision and uh, it just it just sort of worked out. And maybe it was luck, uh, if you believe in such things, maybe it was faith, maybe it was destiny, but the places, I'm sorry, the pieces, the, the pieces fell into place and the places fell into peace simultaneously. And, and uh, when I thought I all was hopeless, then some magic new path would open up to me. And I just, I, when I look back on it, I think back on it, uh, it just, it, it never, uh, it never, it, it, it astounds me that I, I had such gall to have that as a, as a goal, and yet somehow I managed to achieve it. I I don't know. I can't really explain it. I love it. Speaking of achieving it, um, before we take questions, Jack, what is the name of your seventh terminalist thriller that, in theory, is coming out in May, provided you finish writing it? <laughs> Red Sky Morning. So actually, it's right up there. There it is right there on the shelf. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's just a rendering thing. But uh, yeah, Red Sky Morning, M-O-U-R. 
ing. So uh, playing a little little play with words there. I like my titles to have a couple of different meanings. All of them have a couple of different meanings. Uh, and then I want to say one other thing that I got from from Stephen from his books that is very that has, has worked out very well is, and I thought it was intentional on Stephen's part. If you can tell us whether it was or not, is to have very interesting but semi mysterious backstories. For certain characters that you could then maybe in the future go on to write other novels or novellas about. So I very intentionally created a family that had a history in Rhodesia and then to South Africa, then to the United States, um, and, and put a little mystery behind them as well. So, uh, and to my main character, James Reese, his family also with a history in the military that's not and until this last book as well defined in the first ones, because I'm not sure exactly what it is quite yet, but I'm just throwing it out there, making it a little mysterious um, in a way that will hopefully catch the interest of, of readers in an audience so that I can then explore it more fully in, uh, in books of their own. So uh, I very intentionally did that because of the multi-generational swagger family. So I have Stephen Hunter to thank for that. Stephen Hunter Minder, what a great title. I love it, Steve. The Swagger family. So you tantalized me, Mr. Hunter, in our last email exchange by mentioning your next book, where it might travel our direction in terms of background. Is that true? Yeah, mine indeed. I mean, I'm so, I gotten so old now that I can't, as, as Jack said, you can't write to the market. You're a fool if you write to the market. You have to write to your heart or your brain or whatever you want to do. And I'm at a point now where I, I can think of a number of pretty solid commercial projects, but I don't want to do them. Uh, I'll happily sell them to any young writers. Out. No, 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 no. I'm just yoking. Uh, yeah, I'll give them away if someone wants them. Uh, no, I would say that. Uh, and I grew up, because I'm a little older than Jack, the predominant genre when I was growing up in the movies was the Western. And I love Westerns. And I've seen... A thousand maybe ten thousand westerns i love the look i love the iconography i love the variations on the themes uh if, I, if only i could figure out which way the horse goes i'd be but anyway the the part of it is i am doing a i've decided to do a western and i've come up with a fairly contrived way of making it putting it in accord with the uh with the swagger mythology and it'll be another he he will be a swagger and to sort of keep the <laughs> i have to get very tricky in order to get the uh to get the to get the jeeds right and uh i so he's a former civil war cavalry man who actually had a child when he returned from the civil war and then he went west the child stayed behind and it's that child who bears the genes and is ultimately uh, becomes the father of Charles. Although we don't make a big, you know, that's just for people to understand that that line continues through Arkansas. But I moved Jackson, Jack Swagger, I move him to Southeast uh, Arizona because it's both close to Mexico and it's also a very hilly and it's my, it's my own private west in that the rivers go where i say they go the towns are called what i say they're called 
the mountains are look like what I say. I can't make a mistake because there's no reality. It's not based on anything except, uh, I hope people greet this with some affection, it's based on a fabulous, fabulous Japanese samurai movie from 1962, Harakiri by uh, Kobayashi. Uh, and I've always thought that was one of the sort of, you know, as I say, I steal plots. And that was, that I, that, that was such a cool plot. And when I, it occurred to me to do that, that's when I decided to go ahead with the, uh, uh, with the, uh, with that, uh, to, to write the Western. And I'm, I'm having a, just so much fun. They seem to like it at Simon and Schuster, though you never know. <laughs> you know, maybe they speaking of Simon and Schuster, one of the things yeah, I the, really the love about it is clear. That's the only thing that really matters, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, as I said, I have followed Steve's career through. You've been so good to me, Barbara. I, and, I must say. I, Right. I do think it's wonderful to that Steve and Jack have now ended up in the same publishing house. Uh, which I think is, you know, it's a lovely kind of a circle. Because, right, Steve, we've been together exactly. since like, Emily 89, so I have yeah. to say, Jack has the advantage over me in that, you know, I mean, like everything else, publishing has become, it's no longer site-specific. And I grew up dreaming of New York, and I, I was fortunate to get to New York in the period when publishing was still run by the New York Mandarins. But now, if you've got a computer, you're a publisher. And publishers are all over the country. And the long and the short of it is, I've never met Emily. I've never met Lara. Uh, I haven't met any of them. The last editor I knew at some length was a wonderful young woman uh, named Sarah Knight at Simon & Schuster. And before that, a wonderful, wonderful guy named Michael Corgan. And he goes back to the great days of publishing in the in the fifties. He was a, I mean, do you know his story? He's from the great court of movie family. He's he's Vincent's son, and he went to Oxford, and then he because he's he's a, one of those brilliant, charismatic uh, Hungarians, you know, like Robert Capra and some of the others, and all the Corder brothers, and he went. Uh, he went and fought in the Hungarian Revolution. Now, how cool is that? Jack, even a seal sniper's got to say, fighting in the Hungarian Revolution. That's pretty damn cool. That and, is, I might steal that for a character background now that you bring it up. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty damn good. And uh, he was a great guy. And so through him, and I got the last sort of uh, the high water mark of professional New York Mandarin publishing, you know, when there were seven houses and if you didn't publish with them, you were out of luck. Uh, <laughs> and it's no longer true for better or for worse, maybe for better. I don't know. Uh, but I, at least, at least, uh, uh, I, I did, I did enjoy that. I forget what, where I was going on this. Uh, well, nothing. I, I was just saying, I'm so pleased Yep, I love it that you're under the same tent. Oh, yeah, I was pointing out. Jack, you know Emily, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. She's absolutely wonderful. Uh, I bet she is. She's rubberful as an email partner. And you know Lara, too. Oh, yes. Amazing. There, I was Lara such a is really cool. Could not be, we could not be in better hands. That's, That's for sure. good. 
That's good Very to know. True. So I'm going to call up whoever, whether it's Patrick or possibly Jacob, is hiding behind the screen to see what questions we might have from the audience. Well, Stephen, I think, did Michael Corder write a book or two along the oh, way? Yeah, he, and he continues yeah. to write. Yeah, yeah. I think I have one right here. Yeah. Does he have, he has a new book out about the war poets of World War One, oh, really? the of fire. Jacob, is that you? Or is that Patrick? Which one of you is it? It is you, Jacob. All right. So Jack comes back. We will field some questions here. I know I have one right there. I know I have one there, but I haven't. Uh, it's not quite organized the way I want. I got everything upstairs from a couple levels down, so I got to work out, and they're all there, but they're not exactly organized the way I want yet. After I can't wait to find out what Jack actually is intending to do with this library, because at some point, <laughs> at some point, he's going to have to decide, you know, what happens to it. Maybe in Dawa's own library in Park City, Utah. I love it. So, Jacob, what do we have in the way of questions, if any? Uh, looks like we've got a few here. Um, speaking of which, Renee wants to know how many books you can fit in your library, Jack. <laughs> always one more. Um, we always used to say that. How many more? How many people can you fit on a helicopter in Afghanistan? And it's always one more. Uh, so same thing. Uh, we'll just keep expanding. Uh, Steve Landry said, um, Steve Landry, I'm sorry. Jack, how cool is it that Bob Lee knows you? Pretty cool. I mean, dream come true. Um, this one's for Steve. This one's, this one's from, uh, Mintus Freshell. Uh, you don't have to go down those rabbit hole if you don't want to, but uh, what is uh, Hunter's real opinion about the JFK assassination? He researched it for a BLS, BLS book. I accept offhand, I accept the uh, commission's findings 99.9%. .9%. There are several questions that, in my opinion, have not been adequately answered. And one of the thoughts I've always had is that because we still own that rifle, uh that is the actual rifle i would like to have the rifle retested and among the people testing it would be jack carr but the guy who tested it for the fbi was a uh, he was a high-powered shooter and what that meant was they only he only shot through iron sights at long range and he didn't know anything i don't think about shooting with a telescopic sight which is it's entirely different and uh, it, it involves a whole sort of higher declension of learning. And I didn't feel the application of that knowledge to the Warren report. And I would like to see that done as long as it can be done. I, I mean, I know the rifle will have degraded, but I mean, it's just been sitting, I assume, at the, uh, wherever it is, somewhere in the National Archives. and. Uh, uh, I assume it's been well and professionally cared for. Let me just give you one example. When it arrived in the FBI, the scope was loose. Okay, now, does that mean Aswald shot it with the scope loose, or does that mean that sometimes when a very good fingerprint guy for the Dallas police was fingerprinting it, he he loosened the scope sight to get at the to get at the underside of the scope. We don't know it. it you know that rifle has to be tested with the scope tight and with the scopes loose, 
And then those results have got to be compared to the shooting uh, as, the, as that happened in Dallas. And that's going to tell us more than anything has told us uh, has told us yet. And yet no one knew enough, and the FBI expert didn't know enough to ask that question. And it's not even mentioned. I don't in the uh, in the Warren report. Okay, end of rant. But certainly that, interesting. I mean, yeah, yeah. The Warren Commission report probably should have been called the Dulles Commission report uh, for how uh, it was actually run. There's just so many questions. I had uh, Bobby Kennedy on my or Robert F. Kennedy on Jr. on my podcast not too long ago, and and uh, he has a lot of questions about this, and he remembers. I mean, it's amazing to have your both your father and your uncle assassinated. Yes, you. it must have been. Such a, uh, uh, I don't even like to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of podcasts, we forgot to say, um, there is a video that I just saw, but Stephen has appeared on Jack's podcast called Danger Close. Do you know I'm an idiot, Jack? I thought it was Danger Close for a long time. And then all of a sudden I realized it's got to be close, not close. That's the problem with English. Very much in a world, you know. You think, okay, and I, I kept thinking, why is he calling it danger close? And, <laughs> and I realized, oh, so your podcast has been fabulous. Um, and you know, why did you decide to do it? You've had some incredible guests. Yeah, well, originally I just wanted to because I was stepping into the world of social media because I very quickly realized that today, as an author, if you want to build the types of audiences that other authors did, let's say in the 70s, 80s, 90s, before all the distractions started hitting us with uh, the internet and then MySpace and then Facebook and then Instagram and then Twitter and then TikTok and YouTube and everything else that's uh, out there these days, that uh, it requires more than what I originally anticipated, which was going to a cabin in the mountains, writing a book, sending it to New York, doing an interview or two, and then going back to writing the next novel. And I very quickly realized in the lead up to publication of the first one that that's not quite how it is these days, if you wanna build an audience, if that's important to you, a readership. So uh, I, I started, waded into social media, waded into having a website and all these things. Uh, and I started getting so many questions on the social channels that didn't lend themselves to a one sentence answer. I don't know if anyone's mind has ever been changed in the comment section of YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram. I suspect not, or if anyone's had, very few. Uh, let's go with that. Let's go with very few people. So instead of uh, answering some of those questions in the comment section of social media, I thought, well, why don't I just do a podcast? And uh, I'll take some, some questions, I'll have some guests on, but it'll be a way to uh, answer some of those questions. And then very quickly, it got much bigger than that uh, right out of the gate. So I've had some very uh, interesting guests on. I've learned a ton. Stephen was kind enough to come on. And uh, and so now it just continues to continues to grow. And I have different guests on each week. And now I'm bringing it all in-house, though. So it's one that drops tomorrow is my first one in-house. I'm redoing the podcast studio out there, redoing the cameras and the lights and everything else because... You always have to improve, just like uh, this next book has to be better than the one before. Um, same thing with everything that I do. So always constantly improving. Um, so this uh, it'll be a, a couple that I'm doing here from this office until that remodel's done out there and then move out back there with a new a new look and feel, new new improved podcast. So that was the, uh, that was probably way too long of an answer for that question, Mark. Oh, but since you were brought up by a library and you understand archiving, um, and so what, what are you using to make, you know, it's the same problem 
We have, when COVID and Zoom came along, my husband said to me one day, we have a soundtrack. Why don't I just turn it into, it's not really a podcast in the same sense that you're doing, but why don't I do that? And I looked the other day, we've had 268,000 downloads nice. since April of 2020 of these conversations, not the kind of podcast you're doing, but rather, in fact, anybody watching this, you can you could be able to listen to this conversation and recommend it to other people that way, which tells me um, that because people are so busy that actually listening to things for many people is, you know, more compatible with their time than reading. I mean, you can listen while you're driving, you can listen while you're gardening, you can listen while whatever. So do you think that you've tapped into a whole new audience, you know, through that? It's just like audiobooks, Steve, you know? I'm sure that you have all kinds of fans that, um, you know, prefer your audiobooks to fit into their day. Well, it's, the audiobooks, are, it's very interesting um, because first I did other people's podcasts for two years and then I started started my own after I uh, started down on this journey. And I think there it's a very easy transition to make from listening to a podcast to then getting the audiobook in particular. So I think audiobook listeners and podcast listeners, I think those are for, I guess, I think for a large percentage are the same people. So having a podcast and having that person that relates to you um, uh, in, uh, audio through listening is, uh, is can be very powerful today. So, uh, so many people, and I got really lucky with Ray Porter, my narrator as well. People really associate the voices of the characters with him. Um, and I can see some sales and I can see how audiobooks do. So they, uh, people really like the audiobooks. I think they do too. And they obviously do for Steve as well. And Jacob, I'm sorry, I preempted you there by wandering in as I do. We've got any other questions you want to present? No, that, that's it for questions. Is that it? All right. So Steve, anything you'd like to say before we sign off besides, you know, read my book? Uh, read my book twice and buy it twice. No, no. I just, uh, if, if you're in the mood for this kind of thing, uh, I think it'll satisfy you and the one thing that jack and i both represent is the tradition and the belief in heroes and that's what this book offers i almost there's a the frontispiece or the epigraph of the book i almost there's a line from uh raymond chandler that i almost used and someone brought it up to me today completely unknowing of that fact but i didn't i used another line from chandler uh, but the line, the line I almost used was, I think it was, um, he is the hero. He is everything. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the theme of the book and the, really the theme of all my books. And we need heroes. I desperately believe that. I'm not one, but we need them nevertheless. Well, that seems like a perfect note. I wish to end this. Jack, do you have anything to add? Well, when, when you read this and uh, get it this week from Poison Pen, uh, then you can go back and order those as well. And uh, oh, this you're great so good reading journey ahead. I certainly hope you're going to take a photo of that marvelous display of books and put well, it sure. up. Well, so I got to make sure they're all up here, though. I have to run back down to the uh, the guest room and make sure I got them all. I, I got up. I barely got up here in time. Uh, and then, of course, I got to get my my wine. Yeah, so I got to really great go. from carrying all these. Well, I'm really glad you got your wine because that, you know, all of us. Anyway, thank you all very much for joining us this evening. Greatly appreciate it. It's wonderful to spend time with these two guys. So have a great evening. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Barbara. Jack, thank it was great to see you. Great we to have see to get you. together soon. Yes, absolutely. So. Take care. Talk soon.
Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.